The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. You see me limping around a little bit. I think most of you saw the email that I'm going to be having knee surgery this coming week. And... uh, so I'm a little out of sorts here. Hopefully I won't, won't be in too much pain here speaking to you. This is going to be a problem and solution message. So I want you to hear a little bit of the problem and then Jesus with the solution. So the problem is worry and the solution is faith in our Heavenly Father. Do you ever feel twisted like a pretzel with worry? You ever get the knots in your stomach where you know that you're anxious Maybe you've even been able to, uh, or had palpitations where you can't control your heart, can't sleep, uh, insomnia. John Piper defines anxiety as the loss of confident security in God, owing to feelings of uneasiness or foreboding that something harmful is going to happen. Maybe an easier translation would be the movie Jaws, the theme songs always playing in the background. And you're thinking the proverbial shark is going to get you. And you don't have to be age-specific to struggle with fear, anxiety, and worry, do you? According to NIH, between 2007 and 2012, anxiety disorders in children went up 20%. And they're continuing to rise. I was really surprised if you saw the, the email that I sent out that child anxiety is actually, there's much more, uh, many more articles about that than teenage anxiety. But nearly one in three uh, adolescents between age 13 to 18 will experience an anxiety disorder. These numbers have been rising steadily. Here's just a few of the anxieties that teenagers uh, say that they struggle with. Foreign language anxiety, math anxiety, acne anxiety, sleep deprivation, and anxieties that come from a lack of sleep, social media anxiety, home environment anxiety, stress anxiety, high expectations anxiety, overchoice anxiety, depression anxiety, parental approval anxiety, um, Expectations uh, anxiety is there's this overemphasis on everybody. You've got to be happy. We just want you to be happy. And yet very few people are really happy. And if I'm not happy and I'm supposed to be happy, well, then I'm, now I'm anxious and, and worrying because I'm not happy because you're supposed to sing along and clap along. If you feel like a room without a roof, you're supposed to because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth because I'm happy. Clap along if you know what happiness is, the t- is to you because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Do you want to do that? Some people don't. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, what's wrong with me? Well, then there's this thing called um, change of routine anxiety that people get just from different routines. Going to a new school, a new class, a new subject, a new teacher, a new youth group, a new church, new friends, a sleepover, a camp, a retreat, a new environment, anxiety. Well, aren't the adults much better? Well, we have these pressing deadlines. Ah, that was a bad investment. 
that estimate was way too low. Got unforeseen costs, workers not working, managers not managing, leaders not leading, not returning my calls, they won't call me back. Great, they copied everyone on the company in the email that they sent to me. Unpaid bills, I thought it was paid. Losing clients, losing customers, losing business, cutbacks, quarterly reports, income tax, new income tax laws, healthcare laws, healthcare bills, retirement portfolio, where is it? Saving for children's college, end of the month quota, projected earnings is way off. I'm meeting with the boss this week, meeting with the board, job performance evaluation, inability to sleep, chest pains, panic attack, all what the psalmist describes as eating the bread of anxious toil. Psalm 127. And then there's parenting. David Zoll in his book, uh, he's got a book called Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. And he's pastoring in Charlottesville, Virginia. And his premise is that we're looking to secular things to provide ultimate spiritual answers in a culture where church and God are being replaced with secular alternatives. So here's a little excerpt on parenting. A quick perusal of the baby department of Amazon bellies a related truth. No one ever went broke parent, uh, catering to American parental anxiety. When the word parent made its transition sometime in the early 80s from noun to verb, it birthed a parenting industrial complex that is yet to slow its expansion. I'm not just talking about books, magazines, and websites, but conferences, seminars, podcasts, schools, medications, therapies, tutors, and college admissions prep courses. The deluge of parental resources corresponds more directly to the size of our fears, what previous generations would likely classify as paranoia. A recent cartoon spells out the situation brilliantly. A mother and father sit with their elementary-aged son in a waiting room. And the closed door next to the couch reads, admissions. And the mother looks already actively concerned, her eyebrows raised in attention, her face unsmiling. And meanwhile, the father leans over to the young child, elementary age son, and says, now remember, be the self that we talked about, you know, for your admissions. And the the funny thing was, you know, the the admissions interview was someone for whose feet couldn't even touch the floor yet. And the setup alone underlies the absurdity of our cultural performance uh, culture. And so the most overt and probably most damaging expression of the seculosity of parenting occurs when parents lean on their children for their enoughness. A common emblem of this attitude would be the popular bumper sticker, and I hope some of you don't have this on your car this morning, but if you do, we'll still love you. My child is an honor student at such and such you know, elementary school. And something meant to express pride in one's child served as a convenient double purpose signaling parental virtue as evidenced by the gag response sticker, your kid's an honor student, but you're a moron. <laughs> as the kids get older, those stickers are replaced with logos of their college in the parent's back windshield. The message to other parents is clear. I'm enough because my child goes to this college. And if there's an unspoken mandate at work in this performance, performancist parenting paradigm, it has to do with upward mobility. Good parents do everything in their power to ensure their child gets further, further than them on the socioeconomic ladder, and at minimum, that they don't demote the family somehow. Call it the doctrine of filial advancement. 
And he quotes from Adam Strasberg, who's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and he says um, that while many of the parents in his community are wealthy and secure beyond imagining, they're consumed by fear of losing their station or failing to pass it on to their kids. Maintaining and advancing insidiously high educational standards in our children is a way to soothe this anxiety. Is it any wonder that in a survey done every year by the higher education research asking incoming college freshmen if they feel overwhelmed by all that they have to do? Well, in 1985, 18% said they felt overwhelmed. In the year 2000, 28%. In the year 2016, 41%. And it's only going north. It's kind of like the, the kid that I saw my wife was telling me about in the Kentlands that she was wearing her uh, ballet outfit on and yet she had a, a violin in her hand and her mother was yelling at her to hurry, hurry, get to your violin lesson because parents are, are keeping up because they have a fear that you're not going to keep up with everybody else. And so you're running from your ballet performance now to your, your violin uh, lesson. Well... Jesus speaks right into the midst of this parental fear that's leading to many of the teenage and children's fears. And we need to hear what Jesus has to say this morning to all of us. This is what he says. Beginning at verse 19, chapter 6 of Matthew. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let me pray for us. Father, be merciful to us, for we are sinners. Be merciful to me, the pastor, Help us all to listen and to heed this word and pray that, Lord, you would show us how much you care for us, how much you love us. Pray that you would increase our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So you figure Jesus is giving some counseling here to those who struggle with worry. Anybody struggle with worry? We all do. And the question that he begins with is, where's your treasure? For where your treasure is, there you will find your heart. And it's really a play on words here. He's saying, literally, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Well, it's, it's a double treasure word. One's a noun, one's a verb. But it's do not treasure up treasures. Do not treasure up treasures on earth. And he's saying that where your treasure is, there you're actually going to find your heart. And so the first question you have to ask as to why we're being anxious, well, where's my treasure? And where's my heart? Well, your heart follows your eyes. He says, you know, if the eye is good, then then you're full of light. But if the eye is, is dark, then you're full of darkness. So what are your eyes fixed upon? What is your meditation? If your eyes are content, then you're going to be full of light. But if your eyes are greedy and lustful and full of discontentment. You're going to be consumed with getting on in this world and getting ahead and keeping up with the latest fashions. Then you're going to be in the dark because what Jesus is saying is you have a bad master. And so then he's also asking, well, what is your master? There's really only two options here. It seems that Jesus narrows it in on. It's either God or money. And yet we want to have both sometimes. I think sometimes we want to you know, live for God on Sunday but live for money during the week. Well, anxious people, we have our treasure in the wrong place. There's only two places for our treasure to be, in heaven or on earth. One is a safe investment, and one is a totally unsafe investment. You know, he's not saying, you know, don't put any money in your retirement portfolio, but where's your heart? Where are you really banking? Every earthbound treasure will ultimately fail Jesus gives two reasons why, either through deterioration, where moth and rust destroy, or through unforeseen circumstances, where thieves break in and steal. Oh, sorry, Bernie Madoff tanked the stock market, and there goes 25% of your portfolio. Only heaven is immune from the ravages of time and sin. Therefore, Jesus is saying, bank in heaven, not on earth. Live for heaven, not for earth. Matthew Henry, some of you guys know that name, he's a great commentator from the 1600s. I hadn't heard this story before, but he was robbed. And he wrote in his diary that night, and somehow we have his diary and a record of what happened after he'd been robbed. And this is what he wrote in his diary that night. Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before, that although they took my money, they spared my life, that although they took everything, it wasn't very much. And that it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Where do you think Matthew Henry's heart was? Pretty obvious. How do you know where your treasure is this morning? It's easy. Ask someone close to you. (laughs) What do I love? And they will tell you. Ask your children. Ask your parents. What do you dream about? Or even more important, what do you daydream about? What do you long for? What occupies your mind, your time, your energy, your money, your focus? And Jesus says three times here, don't be anxious. Do not worry. It's the bookends of this particular passage. Verse 25, when he says, therefore, and he's saying, you know, check out the two therefores. There's a therefore in verse 25, and there's a therefore in verse 34, and they're both couched with, don't be anxious. And then you got an extra one in verse 31, another therefore. So three times, therefore. 
So he's given actually six reasons logically why we should not be anxious. And the, the upshot is that worry is an emotion that reveals an idol. So worry is one of these things that it's like the iceberg coming out of the water. And you're like, what's going on deep down under the water? Well, there's an idol of control and an idol of power. And now there's this nagging emotion of of worry that's poking out from the water. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit, like the psalmist did in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know what? My anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. If we get still before God and pray that prayer, he'll show us. Martin Luther gave counsel to Philip Melanchthon. And Martin Luther was the father of the Reformation, 1517 kids. And his good uh, friend, and, and he was a mentor to Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, he was eaten up with worry. And Luther used to give two counsels to him. One was, let's sing the 46th. And they would sing the 46th Psalm. But the other was, he told Philip one day, let Philip cease to rule the world. What did he mean by that? The reason you're worried is because you're trying to run the world. You're trying to be CEO of the universe. Why don't you resign and you'll, you're, 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 your problem will be fixed. I have a good friend from college and in his heavy Brooklyn accent, he counseled me one time in college. I was just all worried, all eaten up with all that I was doing, all this ministry I was doing. And his advice to me was, and I never forgot it, Charlie, Charlie, God don't need you that bad. (laughs) And I've never forgotten it. It was like it cut right through. Charlie, God don't need you that bad. If you're so strung out doing ministry, the problem isn't God. The problem was me. And you can only have one master, and these two are at odds. You're going to hate the one or love the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't moonlight with one. You're going to be wholehearted. And so if you're serving money, your eyes are going to be fixed on things. They're going to be fixed on possessions. You've got to get more. You need to accumulate more. And you're going to be anxious and worried, try to keep up with what everybody else is living and telling you you need to do what your kitchen needs to look like and your bathroom needs to look like and what the modern renovations look like and how much square footage you need to have and what kind of car you need to drive and how much you should be you know, doing for this or that and all these things. And Solomon said in Ephesians or Ecclesiastes 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So actually, the more you get promoted, the more stresses that you have, is what he's saying. And what Jesus is saying is, serve me. Let me show you another way. Don't be anxious about your life. Isn't life more than these things? It's more than food more than drink, more than clothing. You wouldn't know it if you watched the commercials. I mean, if you watch any commercials today, how many of them you think will be about food, drink, or clothing? What beer you should drink, what pizza you should eat, what shoes you should wear that make you jump higher, you know, all these. But life is, is, is so much more than these things. And so Jesus says, take two lessons from nature. Look at the birds of the air. Do you, do you look at the birds? 
I always think it's good to just listen to them. Whenever you hear them squawking in the morning, making all their noises, it's a great reminder. Are we not image bearers of God? Are we not the apex of his creation? Are we not the apple of his eye? Are we not his inheritance? Is his arm too short? Can he not spread a table in the wilderness? If he takes care of these birds, he's saying how much more? It's a comparison. How much more does he take care of us? They don't store up. They don't do all this, you know, massive hoarding to prepare. They don't. God just takes care of the birds. And David's testimony in Psalm 37 is, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And Jesus says, it's pointless to, worship, to worry, verse 27. What, what gain do you get from that? Let's, can we add an hour to our life by worrying? Let's just say, you know, I'm going to go home today and I'm just going to worry for the afternoon. I'm going to go home from work tonight. I'm just going to worry for the evening. How's that going to go? You know, let's just go home and worry. He's saying you can't add a single hour to your life, but you can certainly take some hours off. Absolutely. The second lesson from nature is let's consider clothing. Here's the command. Consider the lilies of the field. I meant to buy some lilies and have some lilies down here so you could look at them. And I actually was looking at some lilies this week. They are amazing. You know, there's like tons of different types of lilies and they are really exquisite in detail. Well, we can look at lily potter instead, right? <laughs> see what kind of heavenly father we have. You see, we're to be reminded when we look at the lilies, how elaborate, exquisite, and a faithful provider that God is. And so if he can take care of these lilies, that are, and there's a much more comparison here, and the idea is that they don't own a sewing machine. They don't know how to thread a needle. Yet even Solomon in his, all his glory, he wasn't decked out in designer threads like these lilies. God's taking care of them. And he's given this compare and contrast argument. He's saying, are you not of more worth than the grass of the field? The grass has this really short lifespan. Like one day is alive and next day is thrown into the oven. And so he's saying, Will he, does he not care for you? You are of so much more worth and precious to him than the grass and the lilies and the birds. And so here lies the problem. This OU of little faith is just one word in the original language. Just one little Greek adverb, and it means little faith. We're being called little faiths. We need spiritual eyes, eyes that are good and full of light, not eyes that are secular. Do you know what secular means? Secular just means nowism. It means live for the moment. This is it. That's what secular is, nowism. We need eyes that see beyond this present moment in time. What did the Apostle Paul say he fixed his eye upon? Not what is seen, which is temporary, but what is unseen, which is eternal. And when you get the eternal perspective, when you get the bigger story, right? Like when you, when you see it's a wonderful life, and, and you've got George Bailey, and, and, and all of a sudden he realizes that he's going to make it. He's, he's not going to die, and, and he's going to have his life restored, and he, he comes running back, and he sees his car's been crashed, and he's so grateful to see his car, and he even bangs on Mr. Potter's window, and, hey, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter, and he, and he runs home, and they're right there, and they're going to, and he says, isn't it great? I'm going to jail. It's <laughs> a great line, you know, because he has perspective. Oh, I just love this, this old drafty old house. 
And now all of a sudden, all of his complaining is turned and flipped because he's got his kids, he's got his wife, and God's taking care of everything, and oh, I'm going to jail, ah, no biggie. He was able to, you know, you get the perspective of one who's come back from something. Those are spiritualized, they get the big picture, the big picture. Have we seen God not be faithful to us? It's kind of like a Hallmark movie. Anybody seen a Hallmark movie? I mean, you see a Hallmark movie and you start getting anxious at a certain point in the movie when the tension builds because, you know, she, she has gone off, you know, it's always from the city to the country. And she's in the country and she's left behind her boyfriend that she's engaged to. They're all the same. And now she's, and she's in the country now and she's on some lodge, but she's met this incredible guy and he's the most amazing cook and the biggest gentleman that you've ever seen. But at some point in the movie, of course, the guy from the city who's been trying to get through to her finally just shows up on the scene and right when the, the, the really special guy peeks in the room, he kisses her and she, he realizes she's got a boyfriend, I'm taking the job to the city. You always gotta go back to the city because city's such a bad place. And so I'm leaving the next day on a plane and you might get anxious. You might think it's really gonna happen. But how does every Hallmark story end? You know what? It's going to work out. Do you still get stressed watching it? Not really. I mean, because you know it's gonna work out. Well, how about your life? What was the assurance of pardon this morning? He gave you his son. Is there anything else he could possibly give you? The biggest problem of fear that you will ever face is your sin. It has separated you from God and you're much more scared than me walking down the hill to face my parents. It's much worse than that. You have grieved a great God and God has taken care of that and provided his son. And if he provided his son, how will he not now also give us all things? Is anything gonna separate you from the love of God? What about tribulation and famine and nakedness and all these big things, but you know how the story's going to end. So just like a Hallmark movie, you, do, you know how it's going to end. You don't need to be anxious. We need eyes of eternal perspective. When Bill Gates was asked why he didn't believe in God, he said just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. You see, Bill doesn't have spiritual eyes. How much is Bill taking with him? Answer? None. How much is he leaving behind? Everything. Good answer to both questions. It's a great reminder. The nations, they run after these things. They seek them. They don't know their God. And their treasure is, and their heart is, and their eyes are, and what they seek after, and what they run after. Your heavenly Father already knows what you need. And so the great prescription here, after the threefold prohibition to not be anxious, is to apply their prescription. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Live to please him. Honor him. Honor him with your time and your money. Honor him. He's already provided for us. And so we look at these reminders of creation and we see we have a good father. You know, if you look at the bigger picture of this chapter, let me just show you something. There's something radical that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. It's throughout the whole Old Testament God is rarely, rarely portrayed as a heavenly father. 
There's like three references in the Old Testament to God as Heavenly Father. And yet in this one chapter, in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is trying to introduce us to is your Father. Look at, look, just look at this chapter. Look at your Bible. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. Don't practice your righteousness before men, before other people. If you do that, you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven, verse 1. And then do your giving in secret, verse 4. And your Father who sees in secret is going to reward you. And when you pray, you don't need to do that to be seen by others. Verse 6, go and shut your door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And, and who's going to reward you? Your Father's going to reward you. And, and the Gentiles, they heap up all these long prayers and they do all these things, but, but your Father, verse 8, He knows what you need before you ask Him. And so pray like this, Our Father in heaven. And then how are you to deal with other people? You have struggle with forgiving people? Well, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you, when you go to fast, don't, don't do that to impress people. Don't do it to be seen by them, but by your Father who's in, is in secret, verse 18. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And he goes on, and he's saying, don't be anxious, and the reason you're not to be anxious is look at the birds of the air, because who feeds them? Your heavenly Father feeds them. And then don't be anxious, the Gentiles seek after these things, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. You see, the idea is that your heavenly Father is taking care of you. There's a story that's told about Queen Elizabeth. And she had a, a man that was very skilled and she wanted this guy to go on the voyage with her to the new world because she needed his skills on this voyage. But the man looked at her and said, I'm a small businessman and my business has been floundering and if I go on this voyage, I'm sure my business is going to tank. She looked at him and she said, my dear friend, you mind my business and I'll mind your business. If you got the Queen of England behind you telling you mind my business and I'll mind your business, she's going to take care of him. Isn't that what God's saying here? Same exact thing. Seek me first. Seek my business, and I'll take care of your business. It's the remedy from worrying. It's all about a change of perspective, change of heart. Come and rest in your heavenly Father and his love for you. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, for we run after the things of this world we know that this world is full of fear, fears of so many things to get ahead. And Lord, so often we feel like we're getting behind. And yet you reminded us that you're taking care of all these things. We are eternally safe and secure. We have a heavenly Father who cares for us. And Lord, you've promised us perfect peace to him whose mind is stayed on thee. So may we trust in the Lord, for you are an everlasting rock. Be our rock and change these hearts. We pray that our trajectory would change for your kingdom. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.